Hello, and welcome to Freudian Flex. I'm your host, Sonia Freeman, and today's guest is Dr. Alan Pollock. Dr. Pollock is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Boston. He has had a private practice in Newton, Massachusetts for over 50 years. He is on the faculty at the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute, where he was the director of psychotherapy training for 24 years. Dr. Pollock graduated from Harvard Medical School and completed his psychiatry training at Mass Mental Health Center. Please welcome Dr. Alan Pollock. Thank you, Sonia. Today's topic is going to be the very broad topic of human psychological suffering, but we are going to address it in the very individualized context of one case report, one patient case. And as I understand it, this patient uh, gave us permission to use her case very kindly. All of the information is fully de-identified, and we'll be moving on with Dr. Pollock leading us through this story. Thank you, Sonia. I also want to thank the patient, um, who I'll call Brenda for this purpose, and um, share with the listeners what Brenda said about the possibility of telling her story to the world at large. Um, she wrote me an email and said, I definitely give permission for you to share my story. I'm so glad our work together and my experiences might be helpful to someone. So let me just say a word or two about suffering and why I chose Brenda's story in response to this project, which Sonia called and told me about recently. Um, the uh, field I'm in, psychiatry, is uh, unique in the rich diversity of human experience that it covers and the vast conceptual terrain. We study, pay attention to, and derive uh, useful information from understanding people all the way from the level of molecules and their interactions to culture and everything in between. And somewhere in the middle there, there is the individual and the individual's life of relationship in the context of their family and society and their own development. And so I thought that um, to try to get a sense of how this vast uh, array of dimensions about human experience might be brought to bear to help people, I might take a case where um, two very different dimensions of understanding are both involved, both contribute to understanding and to helping. Um, and so I chose this particular person for that reason, mm. because I think her story illustrates that. And also because uh, she is an artist and educator who, in her own work, has wanted to use her experience to help other people in the spirit you could hear in the quote I just read. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought this also fit her life goals as well as Sonia's project and hopefully the interest of anyone who's listening to this. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you to Brenda if you're listening. And I'm excited for all of the other listeners to hear what you have to say. A little further about the different dimensions of psychiatric thinking. Um, 
the richness of the field is that we draw from so many um, quite uh, uh, separate areas of experience from, as I mentioned, from biology uh, and the, the molecules that make up brains to culture. That is also one of the great challenges. And psychiatry as a field has swung like a wild pendulum between interest in and focus on one level and another. In particular, the two levels that I'm going to bring into this conversation, um, that is um, a psychoanalytic understanding of the individual and a, a, a neurobiologic understanding of the brain, have been in a complex, sometimes antagonistic, sometimes collaborative relationship for much of the history of the 20th century, and especially in recent years. Um, for a long time, psychiatry had very little to offer people specifically to treat psychiatric illness. Um, as a result, common sense, general kindness, and then with the advent of psychoanalysis, deep psychological understanding were all brought to the field and dominated the thinking about how to help people who are suffering for a long time. And then came a revolution beginning in, after World War II, beginning in the 50s and gaining power and momentum in the subsequent decades, especially in the 1970s with the development of lithium as a treatment for manic depressive illness, where specific treatments for very specific psychiatric illnesses emerged. And so that sharpened our understanding of the value of diagnosis from a medical perspective, which didn't matter so much before when we didn't have differential treatments. Making differential diagnosis wasn't so relevant mm -hmm. about diagnosis and careful treatment from a medical point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, pendulum then swung from an emphasis on psychology and in particular in psychoanalytic understanding w way to the other side to biological psychiatry, which then um, became ascendant and dominant. And there's been a kind of struggle in between those two uh, aspects of our field for quite a while. I think we're living in an age of increasing consilience. This, both both dimensions of psychiatric work, the psychological, psychoanalytic on one hand, and the neurobiologic on the other hand, both of them in their own time promised too much, uh, which mm -hmm. led to disillusion, disillusionment and reaction. Um, and the disillusionment and reaction against what has been disillusioning, if we're lucky, leads eventually to some kind of wisdom. Mm. And I think the wisdom these days is less and less antagonism between thinking of people suffering as a medical, neurological uh, illness or as merely a uh, consequence of psychology and development mm -hmm. to some richer attempt to integrate them. When would you say the pendulum swung more in the direction of, to my understanding, it was psychopharmacology, neurobiology. In the 70s. And why do you think that happened? The biggest reason that happened, uh, well, no, there are different reasons on different dimensions. The biggest reason conceptually is what I just mentioned before. New treatments came along that were specific 
and helpful for some psychiatric diagnoses and not for others. The one that really turned the tide was the development of lithium uh, around 1970. It was discovered in Australia in the 50s, um, investigated in Europe, in particular in Scandinavia, and broke into American psychiatry roughly around 1970. Um, and when it was recognized that lithium specifically helped people with manic depressive disease and in general was not helpful to schizophrenic patients, suddenly it became relevant to make clear um, medically-based diagnostic distinctions, mm. in particular between schizophrenia and manic depressive disease, which can present very similarly in a given moment. A patient coming into the hospital, psychotic, could be psychotic in an intense uh, a, a manic depressive episode or psychotic because of uh, schizophrenia. Psychotic meaning they've lost touch with reality. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, lithium and then a sequence, a cascade of other medications came along that helped some people with certain illness and not others. Mm -hmm gave a great intellectual impetus to the biological side of psychiatry and a relative, therefore, diminishment of interest in individual psychology. Mm. It wasn't so important to know the individual psychology or the emotional, familial, developmental history of somebody who had manic depressive disease if you know that lithium's going to make them much better and get them out of the hospital in a week, mm -hmm. right? So the sh it went that way. The... The real powerful forces, though, that led to a kind of antagonistic split between these two aspects of psychiatry had to do with money and politics, hmm. right? Drugs came from very large, very wealthy pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. that had a vested interest in pouring money into, into supporting biological research, biological training, biological thinking in psychiatry, um, and... Um, Hospitals were supported by, um, and very often by uh, public funds, where there was a great interest in getting people quickly out of hospitals to save money, and meds could do that much more quickly than deep understanding of people that would come out of uh, the kind of relationship that psychotherapy depends on. Mm -hmm. So political and financial forces gave a great push to what was began with um, research breakthroughs and intellectual shifts and um, swung the pendulum a long way. And Do you uh, think that the pendulum is still swinging in that direction? No, I see it swinging back. Okay. We have, uh, I, as you mentioned to the audience, I was director of psychotherapy training at the Boston Psychoanalytic for a long time. And there was a period of time when many, many psychiatric residents training um, at hospitals around here had very little interest in coming to learn what we had to teach because they had uh, the Kool-Aid they swallowed was psychiatric illness is neurobiologic and they need to approach it as any other branch of medicine. Mm. You know, as I mentioned, that was oversold, just like we on the psychoanalytic side had oversold to 20 years before that how much we uh, how much uh, we could offer suffering patients. So this was oversold. And they um, pushed, I think, part, largely by young people who've recognized it was un, 
oversold and now demand to be uh, a trained both in psychological ways of understanding their patients and in biological. Mm. Those re- programs which had largely uh, swung away from, in fact, often kicked the analysts out of their faculty positions wow. because of the antagonism between the biologists, the neurobiologists, and the analysts um, are, are coming back now. And mm. I think a much healthier uh, relationship between the two is developing. So that's the background in part that uh, informed my choice of Brenda as somebody to talk about, Mm. which maybe we want to switch to having done some sociology and history (laughs) of this field. Thank you. So Brenda came to see me uh, about 20 years ago. She was a 26-year-old woman, a few years out of college, and she was in desperate shape. She thought she would have to go to a hospital, that she couldn't function anymore. She was a talented, well-educated, very intelligent, psychologically-minded woman, but she was desperate and looked at two. Um, she came in to tell me the story, which was that... Um, All of this descent into uh, enormous suffering began with a wonderful development in her life. Seven months before, she had gotten married to the love of her life. She had met Stuart in college when she was a freshman and he was a senior, and they had had a lovely love affair that year. Um, But he was ready to move on and graduate and um, not ready to... Uh, get married as a a young man coming out of college, and she too had adventures and experiences ahead of her. So they agreed that they would separate and each go into the world and have their, uh, you know, and say goodbye. Um, Seven years later, each of them had had relationships of various intensities in nature, had learned a good deal about being in the world and being uh, in in couples. And uh, Stuart called Brenda and asked her if she would be open to dating anymore because um, all of this experience had taught him that he had not found anybody who seemed to fit him as well. Hmm. Um, She, too, thought that he was what she called uh, her soul twin. Hmm. Interesting phrase, not soul mate, but soul twin. Hmm. A soul twin. And they had a lovely courtship and got married. Um, All of this sounds kind of like a delightful fairy tale, and that's sort of how they they felt about it. But the moment she she got married, she started worrying uh, whether she could be certain that it was the right decision, that he was the right person. Hmm. Um, She... Uh, any any argument she gave herself, any evidence she found that would argue one way or the other, she had a counter-argument to. She was an intelligent person. And her mind began spinning and spinning and spinning so that before long, everything, every moment, everything in life was a test of this question. Hmm. If they... Um, came home from work tired one day and didn't make love, maybe that proved that they weren't meant to be together because um, surely a loving relationship would be passionate. If they did make love, 
maybe that meant that they were just superficial and drawn together by physical attraction and they shouldn't be together for that reason. <laughs> the questions were endless and the suffering grew and grew and as you can imagine pretty soon became a self-fulfilling prophecy because mm -hmm. what kind of intimacy could they have if she was constantly asking herself was this meant to be is he really my soul twin mm -hmm. or was this not meant to be um she went to see a therapist who was uh, apparently not well educated about one of the two dimensions I've been talking about, the medical diagnostic side, because this therapist told her that clearly she was ambivalent about Stuart and marriage and that they should explore her ambivalence, all of which just fed and deepened the vortex of doubt she was in. Mm. She would go to therapy, therapist would say, well, you're doubting him, so maybe there's a problem here. Tell me about it. So her doubts would deepen, and then she'd have a counter-doubt and a counter-doubt until she was barely able to function. Um, one, only one thing gave her much relief, and that was long phone conversations with her mother. Mm. Um that gave her some relief. Mm -hmm. So I told her at this point, she told me that much, I told her at this point that I believed she had what the French call the, the, the mania de doute, the doubting mania, <laughs> which is known in America um, by the less uh, uh, poetic name, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. That her mind was caught in an obsessive need to try to wring the uncertainty out of her uh, decision to marry Stuart. And that um, there, she would not find an answer to that, no matter how far she chased the doubts, because the very nature of them is that she would continue to spin round and round and round. So I told her that if I was right about this diagnostic suggestion, then it would be likely that this was not the first such episode she had. That it might be the worst, because it's the first time she's come to treatment for it, and the uh, first time she's ever felt she was suffering so badly that she needed to be put in a hospital. But that OCD usually begins in childhood, and that she would have had pre uh, uh, earlier episodes of some severity or another that would have a qualitative uh, um, nature not so different from this. And her answer was something like, by God, you're right. In fact, I've had a series of them. When I was a little girl and lost my first tooth, I thought, this means I'm growing up. And I got very concerned that I might be growing up too fast. And I felt that I was doing something wrong. I felt guilty, like I was doing something wrong. And I went through a period where I thought about it all the time. Hmm. And when I moved from a, to a big girl bed, I had another one like that too. I'm growing up too fast. Something I'm doing something wrong. And I was totally preoccupied with that all the time for weeks or months. When I was nine, 
I read a book about a boy who had progeria. Progeria is a medical illness where someone does grow up too fast. Mm-hmm. Right? They age prematurely and die, um, and um, die young. And she had a period when she was frightened that maybe she had progeria too. All of these were characterized also by this the doubting mania. How do I know for sure? Maybe. How can I tell? If I have it, looking in the mirror, mm. do I have? Am I getting wrinkles at age nine? She then transitioned to adolescence to different content, but similar kinds of worrying. First time she made out with a boyfriend. How did she know for sure she couldn't get pregnant? She knew she came from an educated, uh, um, middle class, educated. Uh, Uh, background, Mm -hmm. she knew uh, she'd had sex education in school and it was in her community. She knew how it happened. But could she know for sure Mm. that the boyfriend might not have gotten excited? Some sperm come out of his penis, worked its way through the fibers of his underpants, crawled down his leg, across the carpet, up her leg, through her clothes, and inseminated her. Could she know for sure (laughs) that it wouldn't do that? She knew it was unlikely, (laughs) but could she know for sure? When she got further along and actually uh, had sex for the first time, um, her obsession that occupied her for quite a long time wasn't pregnancy. But how would we? she know for sure she didn't get AIDS by doing this? Mm. Um, so you see that each of these episodes has the quality of the developmental phase that she was in, the, the content of the developmental phase, but the quality, the phenomenology of the experience, the being plagued by doubts, the need to think of it again and again and again, the worry that she had done something wrong, mm. um, even maybe something that was uh, she should feel guilty about, not only wrong like marrying the wrong guy, but it's wrong somehow to grow up and um, or it's wrong to have sex if you're an adolescent. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the same from episode to episode. I pointed that out to her. And she said, oh, my gosh, it's right out of Erickson, isn't it? <laughs> By which she meant Eric Erickson, who she had read and knew that he had described um, the particular qualities of various stages of life. Mm-hmm. He was one of the people who gave us a psychological scaffolding for development throughout the lifespan. Um, she said, yeah, I see that they're all the same, but they're... That what I worry about has to do with what phase of life I'm in. Hmm. So, so far, I'm thinking a little bit psychoanalytically and developmentally, but primarily as a doctor. If she'd come in with inflamed joints, I might say, you know, joints that are inflamed like that, that particular thing, tend to occur in, um, say, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And so I wonder if you had that, you might have some of the following other symptoms, and it might have begun in this way. How does that fit with your history? I did just the very same thing, and it's what her first therapist wasn't equipped to do, wasn't equipped to see it medically as an illness. It happens, by the way, that we know more about the neurobiological underpinnings of OCD 
the mechanisms in the brain than we do about almost anything else, any other condition in psychiatry. So I actually could tell her quite a bit about what was happening in her brain mm -hmm. and that, um, um, you know, the characteristics, many of the characteristics she shared uh, with other sufferers from OCD, in fact, animals mm -hmm. that have similar behavioral problems, so that clearly has an evolutionary neurobiologic uh, basis because the phenomenology, the nature of it the, is so similar from person to person um, and even other non-human animals. So um, that gave her a great deal of relief to know she had an illness. I told her that I believed that she had a biological predisposition to obsessing but that the content had psychological meaning, and that if we could control the spinning, the vortex that she was caught in, and give her from some relief from that, we might come to understand something important about her emotional life, her, develop, her emotional development in life and her con conflicts. And I pointed out two things from the story she told me about, or three things, actually. One is that she turned from her husband to her mother for comfort when she started suffering. Can I ask you yes. to just hang in there while the creaks happen and, I, and start at one after yeah, they stop? Yeah, sure. I'll take a swallow of water. Yes, please. I'll just take a quick one. Tell me when you're ready. Yeah. They shouldn't come through, actually. Really? Yeah, you should be good. Okay. So if you just take it from one and then keep going. I will. Yeah. So... One, I noted that as she descended into this terrible maelstrom of suffering, she turned from her husband to her mother. So I suggested to her that this episode of OCD might be triggered by the developmental step that marriage represents of in, at some level, leaving your family of origin and creating a new family. Two, related to that, is the theme of, uh, of being one's soul twin. Hmm. I wondered if perhaps her mother had been her soul twin, and if marrying Stuart to her felt in some way like either betrayal of her mother or at least the loss of soul twinning. Um, and that that may be part of what did it. And three, the story she told suggested that growing up throughout her life has represented some kind of emotional threat. Mm. And since she often felt guilty, like some kind of act that um, was harmful to somebody, given the evidence that she turned to her mother and that soul twinning is such a central concern of hers, I wondered whether she experienced her own growing up as a threat to her mother or to her relationship with her mother. Um, and I said that we would get a chance to learn more about this if we could first slow down the spinning. Mm. And that fortunately, these days, we have medications that can do that. Mm. So I recommended she go on an SSRI, um, a ser elective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which has the quality of giving people relief from obsessive um, cycling 
By the way, I've used a word like vortex and maelstrom and cycle. Over the years, every I think without exception, every single patient who has come to me in a state of distress, of uh, OC, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder distress, has spontaneously tried to convey what it was like with a metaphor that came from the idea of a circle. Mm-hmm. It happens to be interesting because what we know is happening in the brain is, in fact, there is a neurobiologic circle, a circuit going from between three evolutionarily old areas of the brain, and it's circling round and round and round and round and round and round. If we had time, I could explain what those areas are and what they have to do with the nature of OCD. Hmm. But it's interesting to me that there seems to be some intrapsychic perception that everybody with OCD has that they are caught in something that has them going round and round and round. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the phenomenology is they keep asking the same question again and again, so that is part of it. But it's a representation also of what's literally neurologically happening in their brain. Mm-hmm. So she felt a great deal of relief that this was something that was known, that we could give her some surcease from this cycling and that she might come to understand something important about herself in this because she was a psychologically minded person and that was appealing to her. So I put her on um, the only uh, med of that class that was out at that time was Prozac, which is a very fine and useful medicine for this condition with very few side effects. So I put her on Prozac and she went uh, out and came back to see me the next week. And she said to me, the first thing she said was, well, I still have some of the same thoughts, but they no longer get the motor churning. Hmm. So with that, with the ability to think but not to be caught in painful suffering of obsessive rumination, of constant doubt, we could begin to explore And those three clues that I picked up that I pointed out to her the previous week, all of which come from my training as a psychoanalyst, the first part, telling her what her brain was doing, that we have treatment for it, it's a well-known condition that has evolutionary and neurobiologic roots, that's all functioning as a physician, as a psychiatrist, as a particular specialist in medicine. But to be able to listen developmentally and psychologically and get a sense that what had triggered this uh, surge of obsessing uh, had to do with inner conflict of a psychological nature and the specific listening that let me pick up the clues, that comes out of psychoanalytic training. Mm -hmm. So this was a case in which she was helped by both at once, both of these sometimes warring aspects of psychiatric thinking collaborating with each other to help a person who is suffering both from a neuro- neurobiologic disorder and from psychological conflict. Hmm. What followed was a period of psychotherapy. Um, the medication gave her enough relief that we could do psychotherapy, which um, confirmed and made much more detailed and specific the hunches I got the last time. Was it psychoanalytic psychotherapy? Yes, psychoanalytically uh, informed psychotherapy. Okay. Um, was she lying down on the couch? No, okay. she didn't come. So 
this that's a distinction that you raise that people in the field care a lot about. Mm. The distinction between whether you call something psychoanalysis proper, that they come in four or five times a week, lay down on the couch, and free associate, that is, say, whatever comes to mind, mm-hmm. and the analyst sits back, tries to listen to the unconscious, which I did when I picked up twinning, turning to mother, and the repeated theme of uh, growing up or uh, developmental steps and sudden guilty doubts. Um, That's all analytic thinking, listening to the unconscious. She was not conscious of the themes I pointed out to her. She Mm -hmm. knew the story of each individual thing, but she didn't know that she was troubled about development, felt guilty that it was hurting somebody and felt that her a very, very, very special relationship with her mother that she would call soul twinning was endangered by her development. All that was unconscious to her. So that's psychoanalytic thinking. But the distinction you raise, which is of great interest to practitioners and not so much interest to patients, Mm -hmm. um, about whether you come four or five times a week, lay down on the couch and call it psychoanalysis, or whether you come, say, twice a week and sit up and talk much more actively back and forth and call it psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Um, um, that, that's a somewhat parochial concern. Mm-hmm. But, um, but she came twice a week, sat in a chair, we looked and talked at each other in the way I've been describing so far. So where is she at now? So now we are more than 20 years later. She has uh, a a highly functioning professional adult who has a happy, successful marriage, has a couple children, um, one of whom came to see me when he developed a sudden outbreak of OCD. Hmm. Had one session. I'm not a child analyst or a child psychotherapist. I'm not, not trailed in child psychiatry, so I wouldn't treat him. Um, but the mommy said to him when he suddenly had his own version that she knew a doctor who helped with feelings, and maybe I could help him or at least help him find somebody who could. So Mm -hmm. he came to see me, and it turned out that he, too, um, had an outbreak of OCD. Frequently it runs in families, Mm -hmm. and his, too, was stimulated by emotional conflict. In his case, his enormous jealousy of his little brother and his feeling like it was not okay that he was jealous that he didn't want his mommy to give his brother so much attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And he handled that by developing various obsessions. Um, Anyway, so just one session with him was enough to give him a great deal of relief and to enable him to say to his mommy, Mommy, it really makes me mad when you pay so much attention to my little brother. And mommy, who's wise and psychologically minded, could say, I know, I understand, it feels awful, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you can tell me. And it's okay if you're really mad about that. And it's okay if you have feelings like you want to hurt or get rid of your little brother. You can't do it, of course. You can't actually hurt him, but it's okay. Mm. You want it and feel it. Mm -hmm. And that was all that cured his obsessive crisis. He'll probably have more at some times in his life because he, too, is predisposed. I'll say a little bit more about the therapy that uh, leads to the question of where she is now, too, the question you just answered. I jumped ahead. 
at the end of a period of a couple of years of our working together in psychotherapy, she said to me the following. She said, I believe I learned to do OCD as a kid because it was instead of something. It was instead of all the feelings I've discovered in therapy here. You see, I was a golden girl and felt my parents needed me to be perfect. So I never had an adolescence. I was never angry. I was never a problem. I was never sullen or resentful. That's part of how she was a soul twin to her mother. She mm -hmm. fed her mother's need to have a perfect daughter. Mm. Since I've been in therapy, I've had some of that adolescence. I'm not proud of all the ways I've behaved to my parents these last couple of years, but I think it was necessarily and good, and they tolerated it better than I feared they would have, mm. and we've all survived it. I think that I did, I learned to do OCD because it was instead of all of that, and um, now I don't need it so much anymore. Mm. She then predicted quite accurately, that she probably wouldn't have another troubling OCD episode until she became pregnant, because that would be the next big mm. developmental step that meant a, a further step away from being her mother's daughter to being a grown woman of her own with her own family. And that was, in fact, the case. It was some years later that she had her next OCD episode, but it was she was much more prepared to deal with it. She knew what it was immediately went back on meds, came to talk to me to go back. She stopped therapy, came back to do a piece of therapy on the meaning to her of pregnancy, especially in relationship to her relationship to, to her parents and her mother in particular. And um, it was easily, easily controlled. She didn't end up in a crisis like when she got married. Um, but she was quite right and uh, psychologically wise that that would be the next challenge in this sequence of growing up, developing, separating from, mm. from mommy that would likely stir her up that much. You speak a good amount about Brenda's own insight into her condition. Yeah. What do you think insight does for a patient? How is that helpful for somebody well, that's a wonderful and complex question. Um, when, when Freud developed psychoanalysis, he had a, um, a, a, an initial hope, let's say, or maybe experience is a fairer way to put it. His early experience was that people came in suffering from things they didn't know about themselves frequently things they didn't know about their own past experience. In the case of Brenda, it wasn't so much facts she didn't know about herself, but all sorts of feelings that she didn't know about herself. Resentments and angers, stuff that are part of ordinary life but didn't feel acceptable to her. Mm -hmm. So she had, instead of, as she put that, instead of having those feelings and knowing them, she had developed obsessive doubts and had obsessive ruminations, and so she never had to know about them. So Freud originally discovered 
that people had psychological suffering because of things they didn't know about themselves. And the hopeful part, the part I call the hope, was his recognition that if they could be helped to know these things, their suffering could go away. He was actually taught this by a woman named Bertha Pappenheim, um, better known in the psychoanalytic literature as Anna O. Oh. Anna O. Oh came to Freud's mentor, Josef Breuer, uh, with all sorts of suffering. At this point, there was no methods for helping. Um, there they gave people baths, told them to take rest cures, uh, electro treatments. Electricity mm. was very exciting at the turn of the, mm. the 19th century, the end of the 19th century. So maybe they'd be given electric stimulation from if if her arm, for example, became suddenly paralyzed, um, he might give her electric stimulation. But Anna O. Uh, uh, or Bertha Pappenheim was a very talented. Uh, a brilliant woman, and she insisted that that Breuer just listened to her, and made him sit and listen. And she then poured out what we came to think what call associations, her free associations. Mm-hmm. She poured out things she thought, whatever came to her mind. It led to the recovery of memories from early in her life. Mm-hmm. And whenever she recovered a memory that had been traumatic to her, a symptom would go away. Hmm. She called it chimney sweeping. Breuer told his disciple Freud about this, and they wrote about it, and they called it catharsis, based on the Greek idea that we get out from inside of us something that is pathogenic. Hmm. Um, uh, They called it that, and... um, Freud went on to uh, develop that into a full method of psychological treatment that he called psychoanalysis. He invited people. At first, he'd used hypnosis um, to help people get access to what they didn't know about themselves and put it into language that they could hear. And um, later, he decided that hypnosis wasn't necessary in any way. He was not a talented hypnotist. He didn't do a very good job of it. But that if he just asked people to relax and uh, do what uh, Bertha Pappenheim had done, Anna O oh had done, uh, just say what came to mind, then their own associations would give him enough evidence to say to them, um, I think maybe this is what's troubling you. This might have been your experience as a child. I see representation of, much like I said to uh, Brenda, that it sounds like you um, are had a very close relationship with your mother that you experienced as soul twinning, and you think that your growing up is somehow a betrayal of her. Right? I heard that from the associations, from the things she said to me, not that she knew it yet herself. So Freud similarly took the associations and listened carefully and made deductions, which he then said to the patients. And he discovered that when his deductions were accurate, people's symptoms got better. They got better. So that is the history of the idea of insight. And Freud uh, proposed that insight is curative because... We suffer from um, divisions inside our own minds, Mm. from the fact that we quarantine off 
facts, feelings of our own that we feel are not are intolerable. And so we quarantine them off inside of ourselves, not knowing that that quarantining causes suffering of its own later on. Mm-hmm. So that was the first model of psychoanalysis. There are limitations to this, and the question of the relative value of insight alone versus other factors, which I will just kind of grouped together under the idea of the therapeutic relationship mm-hmm. um, has come to dominate uh, psychoanalytic discourse uh, over time, and there's been a fruitful dialogue between uh, uh, those two perspectives, that insight is curative, the therapeutic relationship is curative, there's some truth to both of them, and it may be a false dichotomy anyway, because it may well be that uh, insight only emerges when people have a sense of trust that comes mm-hmm. out of a relationship that they feel is trustworthy. So do you believe that a patient who goes into psychoanalytic therapy does not need to have signs of the potential for insight already when you first meet them? Um. I be- so there's such a diversity of, among people um, that there's, it's not an easy question to answer. In psychoanalytic training, one has a course, or you're, you're taught about what, what's called analyzability, the idea mm-hmm. that some people can profit from this approach and others can, cannot. Mm-hmm. And we try to make that distinction because we don't want to waste the time effort, money that people put into this if it's not likely to help them, just as any other physician doesn't want to recommend drugs that are not likely to help somebody or any other treatment that's not likely to help. Try to use their accumulated knowledge. Surgeons use accumulated knowledge to try to suggest when it's useful to do a particular surgery, somebody's likely to benefit or not. So we have that equivalent too. But it's a difficult thing to to do because people are so complex that we often can make mistakes one way or the other initially. And it's probable that only an attempt to actually do treatment, the effort itself of doing it, will give you enough evidence of whether somebody's likely to benefit, which is unfortunate because even then, there's no clear cutoff. How do I know that I've given it enough of an effort with this person mm. to know that it's not likely to be beneficial? But I can say that accumulated experience, both what you learn in class and psychoanalytic training, but more important, your own experience over decades of what you found uh, develops in therapy when you try to work with people, uh, gives us some guidance of when it may be useful and when it not. not. And there are some criteria um, that uh, can be helpful in guiding that decision. What are they? Well, in general, people who clearly have the capacity to form important human relationships that involve a sense of trust that the relationship can be 
helpful to them and who have a psychological inclination, that's pretty easy. Most of those people can benefit from a psychoanalytic psychotherapy or a psychoanalysis. Mm. Um, the trouble is that people who are most wounded, whose early development has been most mm. problematic, have had the capacity to trust others and to believe in the salutary effect of relationship most deeply challenged. Those are the people who need our help the most. Right. But they're also the ones who come in with the least capacity to use and trust the therapeutic relationship. Right. So those are the trickiest. The um, criteria I found most helpful with that are, uh, were developed by one of my friends and mentors, uh, Dr. Dan Bowie, one of the great teachers in town. There are many people who have written about this, but um, Dan has been most influential in my own work, especially with patients who are more troubled, more, you, you might say, more sicker or more disturbed. Because, mm. um, as I said, the ones who've got more psychological health, it's pretty obvious. It was obvious to me that Brenda could benefit from psychotherapy if we could just slow down the obsessing enough for her to be able to use her talents. I could tell from the way she related to me right away. The idea of twinship already says that important human relationships make a huge difference. From the trust she showed in telling me her story so cogently that after half an hour of listening to her, I could know this much about her, that tells a lot about mm -hmm. her fundamental trust in human uh, relatedness. Mm. Um, and it was clear she had intelligence and psychological mindedness. So those people, it's easy to tell whether they can use a psychoanalytic approach. It's the ones who need us the most, who are most deeply damaged in their capacity to trust others, uh, where it's hardest to know. So one of Dan's criteria is that they actually have to have achieved somehow or another meaningful goodness in their life that will can sustain them through the hard work and as they come to take in the therapist's true appreciation and caring for them, which is a step that you, I illustrated and is necessary in all these cases, has to be based on the truth of who they are. It has to be based on truth. So that's one of Dan's criteria. Um, and this woman had that. Um, not everybody does. Some people come with n nothing to salvage in their lives. I made the mistake of trying to treat a woman, but I hadn't yet learned Dan's criteria, and she did not have that. And she got worse and worse under treatment. The temptation to be cared for only led her to become sicker and sicker and more and more crazy rather than more and more healthy. That was one. Another of his is uh, hard to assess, but there has to be in, the, in their character structure, in their personality, a preponderance of love over hatred. We all have both. Mm. But the person has to have a greater degree of love than hatred. So ultimately coming to know themselves is based, uh, frees up powerful healing forces. It sounds a little new agey, but no, you get creative. a feeling for, for, 
for if you get to know somebody well, of how much they are capable of love. Mm -hmm. And we all have hatred. We all hate the people we love, too. That's one of the (laughs) terrible, deep psychoanalytic secrets that Brenda, for example, had to hide from herself so much Mm -hmm. that her mother wasn't just the soul twin who she loved. Yes, she loved her mother for sure. She's also a flawed human being who frustrated uh, Brenda, hurt Brenda at times, and who Brenda also hated. That's unfortunately the human condition. Mm. But a preponderance of love over hatred. And Dan's third criterion is truth has to matter to them. The woman I mentioned that I tried to treat and made sicker by trying to treat was grew up with a psychotic mother. And um, truth didn't mean a lot to her. And so when she encountered my attempts to care for her, she got crazier. She was content to have a crazy story, and the story would get crazier and crazier the more she was tempted by my attempts to care for her, Mm. to believe that maybe I was caring for her. So those are Dan's criteria. They actually have to have some good in their life to be able to take that in as a truth about themselves. Maybe they even have to have, I think one version of Dan is they have to have some positive relationships in their lives. So... Uh, goodness that they've managed to establish in their life, preponderance of love over hatred in their character structure, and uh, uh, a respect for a truth, the truth really matters to them. Those are his criteria. Obviously, criteria, obviously you have to work with somebody a while to assess that. Mm-hmm. You have to get to know them a bit. Where does transference and counter-transference fit into this criteria? That concept. So that, you know, my favorite aphorism, by the way, is Susan Sontag, who said, reality is complexity. Mm. So I'm sorry to say that every question you ask me, I'll want to say that's complex. <laughs> so Freud's, that's a good thing. <laughs> Freud's original understanding of transference was rather mechanistic. It went with the idea that people have repressed was his term. They've somehow quarantined off some facts about themselves, including relationship experiences that were important to them, and uh, many of which had uh, both positive and negative. Some have had destructive influences, some positive. And that in a kind of mechanistic way, when someone gets into an analytic treatment, those come to shape to color the way the patient sees the analyst. That's what he meant by transference. We literally transfer our understanding of earlier people in our lives onto the the, the uh, therapist, the analyst. And the analyst's capacity to understand, see that, and help the patient see that is one important source of insight. He came to think it was the most important source of insight. Oh, I might say to my patient who was afraid of my that I who's for whom my caring for her was terrifying, you assume that I and everybody are like your mother, incapable of caring for you, needing you to take care of yourself because we so badly need you to not be a burden on us, Mm. that would be a true statement of transference, Mm -hmm. right? So it came in directly to that. Um, There is 
the concept of transference has also um, grown and complexified over the history of analysis. And it's sometimes it has become so broad as to be a term that simply describes the entire relationship between the analyst and the patient. Sometimes it's used in a more narrow form that Freud meant it. Oh, right now you are experiencing me in the way you experienced your mother as somebody who's incapable of taking care of you. Um, so there's a lot of complexity in what we mean by the term transference, and countertransference just means the analyst's response to the patient, the analyst's feelings about the patient. Um, in the more modern usage, where it is expanded to mean just about everything that the therapist feels about the mm -hmm. patient, um, then it is a form of an aspect of the countertransference. You know, I'm seeing a wounded child and I want to take care of her. That comes out of me, not the patient's belief in what mm -hmm. I can feel. But in one definition of transference, it comes out of me. And the relevance of that, the reason we give it its name, is just because it's a way of helping us think. When we label it that, we're not saying it's any different than any other human relationship. All relationships are full of what we call transference and countertransference. Mm -hmm. We all see the, the next person we meet through our own eyes, which have been shaped, our lenses have been shaped by all of our previous experiences with other people. Mm -hmm. um, the Piagetians call those schemas. Um, we can only perceive the world through schemas, through ways of understanding that are shaped by previous experience. And their ways of responding to us are determined in part by what we personally invoke in them um, and, and uh, by their own whole history. So all relationships are full of transference and countertransference. The reason we give it a name isn't that there's anything special about it. It's just a way of our saying to ourselves, let's think about this. There's something we can learn that can be helpful to the patient if we'll think about its meaning. Mostly, our relationships with people are full of countertransference and transference, and we just take it for granted. Mm. We react to it as the nature of human life. And, you know, somebody makes me annoyed, I might re uh, respond to them with annoyance back. But mm. as a therapist, when I'm trying to be helpful, it helps to say, huh, my annoyance back is a countertransference response to something in this patient. Their annoyance at me may be because uh, of a transference response to me that I remind them or bring out or they're seeing me through a certain lens. If instead of reacting the way we ordinarily react in our ordinary life, I think about it that way, I might find some options in here for helping the person. Mm -hmm. That's the only relevance of giving it names. It's not that it's any different from all of human relating. Mm. One of my mentors says that countertransference doesn't exist. It's just transference one and transference two. That's another way of saying <laughs> that all relationships are based are full of transference. Uh, my answer to that is I do, I don't think any of these things have existence as such. The the question is is this way of thinking about what happens between people what exists is what just happens. <laughs> The idea of transference is superimposed. It's an idea, a construct, a concept. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful to helping patients or not? A mm -hmm. hundred years of psychoanalytic thought says yes. 
And in the last 40 years or so, we've come to discover that if we add the word countertransference, that deepens our ability to help people. That would be my response. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of existence. It's a question of what way of thinking is helpful, Mm -hmm. helps us help people. I want to ask you, too, we haven't talked much about the relationship between suffering and diagnosis. Right. What do you think it did for Brenda Mm -hmm. for you to diagnose her with a known illness? It did several things. The most important first thing it did was give her some hope that she could be helped. When I told her, when I gave her a diagnosis and told her there are many people like her with similar kinds of suffering, that we understand some things about the nature of that suffering, and um, we uh, have some approaches, some medical approaches that often relieve the suffering, it gave her hope. And it gave her a conceptual tool that made her feel less frightened in itself. Oh, this is a known thing. It's true for physical illnesses, too. Someone, you read about this all the time. I I wish I could remember the example. Just in the last day or two, I read some little bit of uh, someone's writing about their medical story, going into a doctor uh, after seeing many people with some kind of suffering that had never been diagnosed, nobody been able to figure it out, and somebody says, I have bad news for you, you have a, this following illness, cancer or something, and feeling relief, mm-hmm. even though there's bad news that's going to have to be coped with, because, ah, somebody understands this, there's a name for it, There's a. it's not just craziness, it's real, there's a name for it, And there are people who know something about trying to help. Even when it's a bad thing, um, that often gives relief Mm -hmm. from suffering, even when it's a bad diagnosis. What are some of the drawbacks, maybe, to those types of labels? So I think there can be a value to medical diagnosis, psychiatric diagnosis, when it gives a direction to treatment and gives a sense of there's some understanding about this. If uh, one isn't just, you know, all alone in a universe of experience with no guideposts at all, it's a problem when it substitutes for thinking. Frequently in medicine these days, diagnosis substitutes for thinking, and most importantly in psychiatry. My patient, uh, Brenda, for example, could easily these days have gone into a clinic where she was told she had OCD and she would be prescribed a combination of medication and behavioral treatments, which can be helpful, in which she is taught techniques for stopping herself from doing obsessive thinking. You're taught, for example, that the constant questioning, what if, how do I know for sure, how do I know for sure Stuart's the right guy, is it just keeps the spinning going. And so when you see it, you say, ah, I'm just obsessing. Stop it. Mm-hmm. There's a funny, uh, on the, you know, on the Internet that, uh, oh, what's his name, uh, who used to have a show where he played a psychotherapist, um, one of my wife's favorite TV shows. I'm blocking on his name, perhaps, because he's one of my wife's favorite from the 1950s. <laughs> one of my wife's favorite TV shows from the 60s. He played it. 
played a psychotherapist. Anyway, there's a funny, funny episode where he tells everybody, he uh, obtains history from people and then says, okay, stop it. Just stop it. That's the treatment. Now give me my money. Stop it. <laughs> anyway, it's on the internet. If you write, type in stop it, you'll find it right away. Um, and his name will come to me in a moment too. Um, anyway, the uh, uh, there are, and there's some value to that. It could be helpful. There are many, many people in psychiatry who would consider that sufficient treatment. That's all we have. That's all we do. Um, it would be modeled on medical treatment. You come in with rheumatoid arthritis. You're told, you know, take it easy on that joint, apply hot compress, and take a take a, an anti-inflammatory. And, you know, see me when you're better, and we'll watch it, and you'll probably get more episodes. We'll continue to treat it. Do it exactly the same way. My trouble with diagnosis is when it stops deeper thinking and people stop there. Brenda did have OCD. All that we know about treating OCD could be useful to her. But the reason she was her inborn biological tendency to OCD was triggered was because she had unconscious to her emotional conflicts related to her, in particular, her relationship to her mother and the meaning of growing up and separating. That she needed treatment for, and that diagnosis doesn't help you with. Psychoanalytic thinking helps mm -hmm. you with. So that's my hesitation about diagnosis. It's useful to a point for some people, the people who I described before for whom our analytic treatment doesn't help and can make them worse, it's a good thing we have the other and we can offer them something. Mm -hmm. But for others, um, it cheats them of the chance for the real growth they need mm -hmm. when people think that that's all they need to do. That's what I meant about the tug of war in psychiatry yeah. between the points of view, one or the other, actually both. And by the way, uh, let me comment about Brenda and her statement, I learned to do OCD. What, how do we put that together with the idea that her brain was already at a disposition? My way of thinking about this has to do with, um, you might call it neurofeedback. Brenda had a disposition to obsess. When she was little and she had emotional conflict because she was angry at her mommy who she, to, who she sensed needed her to be a golden girl so that they could have this precious soul twin relationship, she discovered that if she obsessed and obsessed and worried about something like, am I growing old too fast? Which, by the way, has hidden in it. And will I separate from my mommy too fast? Because, right, every step of development is a bit of a loss of the previous level of connection mm -hmm. and the opportunity to form a new one. Every step does have loss and separation involved in it. Intuitively, she knew that development is a loss of some kind of twinship with mommy. And every parent knows that. Every parent feels that the child's, every step in the child's development is a loss. Mm -hmm. One of my friends who's a psychoanalyst said to her son when he was going away to college, the eldest of her son, she said, so you're going away to college now because it is time for you to step out into the world and become an independent man and develop um, new relationships and new capacities and new growth on your own and have your own life, right? Who says that's a good idea? <laughs> 
every parent, every loving parent feels that. And yet we know, in Judy Viorst's words, she wrote a book with the title Necessary Losses, mm -hmm. that they're necessary losses. And in the long run, most of the time, if we're lucky, they're outweighed by new gains. Mm. We get new relationships with our children at new levels, even though we still miss the little kid who would climb up on mm. our lap and suck her thumb and cuddle in and want us to read a story. Mm -hmm. Now we get a daughter who's in medical school and going to become a doctor like us and can share in a new way that she never could before. But I still love being read a good story. Excellent. <laughs> and telling a good story and eliciting a good True. story. True. <laughs> so I, did I lose track of your question about diagnosis? Oh, yeah, about thinking more deeply. That's If it can be both and instead of either or, mm. then both the medical diagnostic emphasis and the treatments that go with that and psychological understanding that comes from psychoanalytic work uh, can contribute to reducing human suffering. Mm. I want to ask you a slightly more specific question. Okay. Do you believe in diagnosing people with personality disorders? Do you think that that's helpful on the grounds of that same kind of commonality? I, I don't like the term yeah. because it's pejorative. Yeah. But I think the term is pointing at a reality. The way I think of it is there are people whose development was healthy enough that they have the basic equipment to have a reasonably secure development of the sense of self of self and the psychological capacities. They have a sense that they are basically worthy of being cared about, that um, maybe even that they uh, are lovable and can love themselves, uh, that they can use their uh, capacity to form human relationships in a positive way in the world and for themselves. There are people whose development has been fortunate enough that they have achieved that. In my field, we call those people neurotic. <laughs> I don't like any of our terms. Mm. Most people think of neurotic as pejorative. Mm. But that's what we mean, that they suffer primarily from neurosis as opposed to what you called a moment ago personality disorder. Mm. Then there are people whose early development has been so traumatic and or their inherent biological capacity to develop psychic mechanisms, psychic capacities, have been so impaired that they have not achieved those capacities. Their capacities that my friend Dan Bowie has written about, he calls them self-maintenance capacities, the core self-maintenance capacities. They have not achieved the core self-maintenance capacities. What do we do when we're hurt? Most of us if we're lucky enough to have had decent enough development where we have had the experience as children that our hurting meant something to somebody and they attempted to help us feel better, most of us seek ways to feel better. People who haven't had that don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. They sometimes don't know what their own feelings are. They don't even know they're hurt. They might not know when they need to eat. I have a patient who did not know when he needed to eat. He didn't know when he was ill. When co-workers, he's a brilliant man, by the way, intellectual development can go on just fine. Hmm. When co-workers took turns picking a place for lunch, 
um, to go out for lunch, he would pick one at random because he had no idea what food he liked and didn't like mm. because of his early development with, uh, at the hands of a psychotic mother. He had no knowledge of his own wishes, feelings, desires, no sense of self, though he had a very fine intellect. Um, so <laughs> people who have not achieved the core self-maintenance capacities including the ability to know your own feelings, to have some ability to soothe yourself, some ability to think about your, your own mind, some ability to form relationships, uh, etc., some sense of reality. People who have not formed that are usually called personality disordered. Mm. They often have very difficult, tumultuous human relationships because they haven't had the fundamental building blocks that would allow them to form them. The people we call neurotic come with most of that capacity already, and they just need to learn to use it to see the parts of themselves they have found to be intolerable and have had to quarantine off, the insight you asked about. Mm -hmm. The other patients need to create, to build those capacities, and those are only built in the context of a caring relationship, a therapy relationship, or if you're lucky enough, a relationship with parents when you're young. But they cannot be created by the patient alone. Whereas the patients who are neurotic, if they get the insight, they can do a lot of the work on their own. Mm. Interesting. So that's how I think of the distinction. Okay. I don't like the terms very much, yeah. um, but I do think the distinction is fundamental. Yeah. And people need different kinds of treatment depending mm. on how much they have achieved, established uh, fundamental core self-maintenance capacities mm -hmm. or not. I have one more question for you before we wrap Good. up. I am wondering about the third criterion, the idea that the patient needs to be accepting of truth. How do you feel as the person who's supposed to be delivering or helping a patient arrive at a truth? Is that something that makes you nervous? Is it something that you step into naturally? Is it something that you feel like I requires a modesty? Like, how do you feel I, about that? I understand your your uh, question. I believe it comes from the Freud's original model that somebody has kept from themselves some insight about themselves, some truth about themselves, which the analyst is brilliant, perceptive enough to see, and then lays it out. Aha! The real truth is you want to kill your mother and marry, kill your father and marry your mother. I just revealed something about myself, right? Um, kill your father and marry your mother, and that is a truth that I am now telling you about yourself, and I am in possession of the truth, because I am the expert here. I think that's where your question comes from, and it's a common, um, how to say, worry about the psychotherapist. My actual experience has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. It's all about the process, and the process of working together with somebody to understand is always attempting together to understand truth, knowing that truth is complex, mm. right? The reality is complexity. There's no one truth. Mm -hmm. There are multiple truths. There are multiple viewpoints on it. Um, and that um, both of you together are working to understand truths about 
your patient's life and experience. So wonderful, the idea that it takes a, takes a team, that it's, it's a team effort. Everything. Uh, Hillary was right. It takes a village, <laughs> too, it, but it certainly takes a team. Um, and the, it's not so much about the facts. It, mm-hmm. The truth isn't about the facts. The truth is about the experience, which happens between the two people in the room in their relationship and their attempt to understand it as truthfully as they can. Absolutely. Which often is quite uncomfortable for the therapist because mm. often involves truths in me too. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That I don't particularly like and want to see. Mm. But if I can bear that and share it with the patient, um, maybe that helps them bear and see truths inside them that they have trouble seeing. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pollock. You're welcome. I think I learned so much about the field today, and you were so articulate and giving with your words. And I also want to thank Brenda for allowing us to share her story. And And I'm sure Brenda would thank you back for this opportunity to help people. And um, I certainly do. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Freudian Flex, produced by Sonia Freeman and Daniel Radin. Original music by Nicholas Guarnada. You can follow us on Instagram at Freudian Flex. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions for us or if you are a psychoanalyst interested in being featured on the podcast, please email us at freudianflex at gmail.com. Till next time.